0: My name is Jeff Harbach, I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we will hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latter and I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to connect with Ben Wanamaker. How are you, Ben?
1: Doing great, Kurt. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, this is great. We, uh, You know, we, I see a lot of emails go back and forth. And as I'm introduced to people from the, uh, you know, it's usually the Latter-day Saint MBA Society uh, board or uh, committee there that suggests names. And I was excited to see your name come across and what we can Uh, learn from your experience and whatnot. So maybe just by way of introduction, Ben, uh, take us just in a minute or less, or, or two minutes or less, just take us through your educational and professional journey, starting with your high school.
1: All right. I'm a proud graduate of the uh, Mountain View High School in Orem, Utah, <laughs> Great, and uh, had a chance to uh, go to Rick's College, actually, for my freshman year. I uh, got into BYU, but decided I wanted to go away from home for a while. I grew up in Orem. And uh, so went to Rick's College for a freshman year, went on a mission to the Fiji Islands, and then I came back to BYU, graduated from there in finance. And then went off to Boston uh, to PwC, Coopers, where I spent a few years doing buy-side and advisory work on the consulting side of their business. One of my clients there uh, invited me to come do things uh, similar internally and it They caught me at the right time where we had just had a second baby and having dinner at home multiple nights a week sounded really great. (laughs) And uh, so I went and joined a company called Covidian, which was a large uh, medical technology company. And that was really my serendipitous introduction into healthcare. Um, Just fell in love with the healthcare industry, thought it was fascinating Uh, some intrinsic value I derived from it and lots of problems to solve that would be worth a career there. I had always wanted to get more education. I had failed to get into PhD programs, um, which if you want to talk about failures, we can talk about that. (laughs) Love it. All right. Um, And uh, ended up with a great job opportunity internally at COVIDian, uh, but thought I wanted to go get more education. I applied to Harvard Business School and uh, was able to get in and had a great experience there. Um, Went after business school and led the healthcare arm of Clayton Christensen's Disruptive Innovation Institute. Um, It was a thrill to work with Clay and Ann and others there, and then had a chance to go to Walmart and co-found and lead a startup within that company, led the primary care business there called the Walmart Care Clinic. From there, had a chance to go do a similar new startup thing between two big companies, Aetna and Apple, where we created some new medical technologies together. Aetna was ultimately acquired by CVS. Uh, expanded my role there to a broader technology and analytics scope. And now I'm in the role of leading enterprise strategy at Humana, another large uh, healthcare company. So it's been a journey I could never have predicted, but uh, very, very, very fun and educational along the way.
0: So it sounds like healthcare, you didn't choose healthcare, but healthcare chose you, right?
1: I, f- I feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I kind of had an inclination toward healthcare, toward being a doctor in college until I realized the amount of science involved and I wasn't a very good science student. And uh, so I, I abandoned that, um, but uh, somehow found my way back to the industry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, being accepted into Harvard, obviously, very competitive. Program for a for an MBA. Uh, so, how w- what do you make as far as the PhD effort? Uh, did you did were you, you wanted to be a professor or why do you feel like that didn't work out? Is there any idea? I,
1: I did want to be a professor. In fact, during undergrad, I was fortunate to create some novel research and partner with a professor. There, we got that research published. We traveled all over Asia and the South Pacific doing research and speaking at conferences. And I thought I had written my ticket to be a PhD. Uh, but I thought I'd give the gift to all of my future students of having some real world experience before I went and did that. Cause I always loved professors that had done something yeah. other than just be a, a student. Um, and when I applied, I applied in 2009, which if you, those listeners who will recall, that was a difficult year economically. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think it was because there were so many uh, other applicants that it was just a tough year to get in. There may have been some divine help in uh, saying not this, not now. Uh, For whatever reason, it was good to have a genuine failure. I applied to nine schools. I got rejected by all of them and Mm -hmm. uh, really had to reconsider that path, whether to apply again and uh, the MBA seemed to ignite my interest more thereafter. Yeah.
0: So how did those nine failures or rejections uh, from schools impact that experience of you applying to Harvard? Or, or did you have your guard up as you uh, read that acceptance letter?
1: You know, uh, it's never fun to fail. Uh, I, I think uh, that experience didn't harden me uh, when I applied mm-hmm. to to business school, uh, in fact, it made me realize that I failed to get into a PhD program. And while it stung and while I had to reformulate some of my plans, actually things worked out just fine. Yeah. Um, and so I was excited to try and get into a good business school. But I had a lot of conviction that if things didn't work out for school that things would work out just fine um and maybe this is heresy to say on this podcast (laughs) i'm not sure anyone needs to get an mba
0: (laughs) oh boy wait a minute we got to do some editing here no Um, (laughs) i appreciate the honesty
1: but but i do think that uh for those that want to it can really be a wonderful blessing and help in their life and their career and that's how i viewed it and and that's how it played out yeah
0: well, let's rewind the tape again. And, uh, as far as the uh, your your spiritual development, you know, being raised or in those developmental years in Orem, Utah, and then going on a mission, uh, maybe just tell us what was your faith development like.
1: You no, know, I, I was fortunate to grow up in a a good community with a good family. My family then encountered some some challenges. We had divorce enter our family, which I don't wish on anyone. Um, I ended up losing my dad earlier than I would have liked. Um, uh, he he died earlier than I would have liked in my early 20s. And um, I think all those experiences just cumulatively, in addition to my mission, which was just such a treasured experience, kind of helped me uh, realize that when I couldn't explain a lot, I I could explain that God loved me. Um, and that I could feel that as a constant through the highs and the lows in my life, and um, over time, as I've learned more and had more experience, and as I've really better appreciated the power of covenants in my life, um, that that has just that has just ring true every time. There's there's a quotation by Elder Holland that I've kept close to me both. Spiritually and professionally, uh, it's maybe one that's familiar to you and others. He said that God doesn't care nearly as much about where you've been as He does about where you are, and with His help, where you are willing to go. And that's that's really been a quote I've been able to hold on to in a lot of ways in my spiritual development, um, seeing myself grow through some adversity, and all of us have our share. As well as professionally, that when I fail to get into a PhD program or I. I really blow it in a meeting or a deal that God cares a lot more about where I'm willing to go with his help than about the meeting I messed up or the uh, immature spirituality that I've had at certain times in my life and just keep building.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that sort of feeds into my next question as far as, you know, how does your faith, uh, or how do you lean on your faith in your current state of, of your professional life? Obviously, you're very busy, you have a lot of responsibilities, stresses. Uh, you you can sort of articulated one example there. Any other uh, thought on on how you lean on your faith today?
1: You know, Kurt. For me, I've I've found it hard to keep my faith and the way I handle my professional life separate. I've found that I really need to be pretty integrated in that way. Now that that doesn't mean that I'm doing my church calling during all my work hours uh, yeah. or, or that I'm preaching full time, but but I'll give you an example, right? At Pricewater House Cooper's I was struggling with some demanding hours and some asks of partners that were infringing on my ability to keep the Sabbath the way I wanted to. Mm. I was 18 months out of college. My wife and I had a conversation one Sunday evening, and I said, I think I need to go tomorrow and talk with the senior partner and tell him that I'm, I'm not working on Sundays ever. And I think he's going to fire me. <laughs> <laughs> and so are you okay with that? And she said, sure, we'll, we'll find another job. And I went and I had that conversation and to my great surprise, Kurt, he, he didn't fire me. He instead said, thank you. I didn't realize that was important to you. Of course, you don't have to work on Saturdays. I trust you to get the work done that you need to. And I was, again, to my surprise, invited to the annual partners meeting to receive the chairman award and to talk to the, all the partners about how to get young associates to express the things that really matter in their life. You know, not that I can't ever miss an episode of The Bachelor, you know, but, <laughs> but that if there's things that really matter in your life, how do you get articulate about that? And that experience really taught me that I shouldn't negotiate on things that really matter and faith matters. And when work tries to bump faith um, out of the proper place, um, I have a conversation. And I prioritize amongst people that I care about at work, be they bosses, peers, people on my team. And I'll tell you, Kurt, never once have I run into a situation yet where that has wrecked my career. In fact, in many respects, like the story I just shared, it actually helped accelerate my career. Wow. Um, and so I, I've i been fortunate in that way that uh, the choice not to negotiate on those matters has actually been good for my faith and I think been good for my career as well.
0: Yeah, man, what a fantastic leadership principle it, in, in whole as far as that, that our, especially our listening audience who may be in a management role where they're managing a, a team of people, you know, to really ask yourself, do I know what, what really matters to these people? Like what's at the core of it? Um, and by knowing that, you become a stronger leader and one that's more empathetic and understanding to what's, you know, what they're, what's prioritized in their life.
1: I I totally agree, Kurt. And I've found as a leader, you know, that story from my past was when I was a very junior guy. I'm now kind of mid-career and have had some sizable teams of my own. And I've found as I've really been open with my team about what matters to me, and as I've encouraged them to be clear about what matters to them and the values that they hold most dear, and to make sure those are always in the proper place in their life. I find them doing the same thing. They're sharing those things with me, they're prioritizing them, and they're more effective team members and they, they happen to wanna to stick with you as a team leader and, and you can do great things when you have a cohesive team like that. I'll give you an example. I had a woman on my team approach me recently and say, I haven't had dinner with my spouse more than once a week for six weeks. And I said, "Well, why haven't you had dinner with your spouse?" She said, "Well, because he has unusual evening work hours and because I have a lot of work responsibilities." I said, "Well, couldn't you put that work aside to the next day and have dinner with your spouse?" And she said, "Could I do that?" I said, "Absolutely, you could do that." And and that that individual's an extremely high performer on our team. She's happier, I think she of values that our team and our company can value her priorities in that way, and it's it makes everyone better.
0: Yeah, uh, that's powerful. I, I want to ask you before we jump into some of the other uh, points on on the outline here, uh, as far as your time with Clinton Christensen's organization, I, I think uh, so far there's maybe only one or two episodes on, on this podcast where Clayton Christensen name just didn't come up organically, you know, nothing that I pushed or, or uh, inserted into the conversation. And so what, what was your, as you reflect on that time working with Clayton Christensen and his uh, incredible organization?
1: Well, I'm not surprised that you're having that experience. Yeah. Um, Clay was uh, a, an extraordinary human being. We had the chance to know him for years before and, uh, and his wife and, and many of their children, before we started um, working there at the institute, and I just can't speak more highly of a human being. Of course, his contributions to to business thinking are are in their own category, um, but the, his stature as as a man and as a disciple, I think, were even even greater. Uh, the things I learned from Clay about generosity, about humility about kindness about being willing to share the gospel um just an incredibly fine example much finer than me of the principle i just tried to explain of integrating your your profession and your faith and uh boy he he was a real gift to the world and to the church and to everyone who knew him and uh felt really fortunate to have the time I did uh, with him and with those in his orbit.
0: Yeah. And uh, the other principle you mentioned here is get the basics right. Unpack that for us.
1: Yeah. You know, on occasion, I'll have someone come and say, you know, how do you get to where you are? I'd like, I think I'd like to have a career, something like yours. How do I do it? And Kirk, I'm kind of at a loss to explain that. Not that my career is so wonderful or special, but I couldn't have planned it. And when I reflect on that, I go back to a lot of basics, like show up on time, do what you say you're going to do, be trustworthy, get as much education as you can, master the skills and the, the opportunities you're given. And I know everyone listening knows those things, but Elder Bednar said once that just you know not not just because we know it doesn't mean we do it <laughs> he said it differently but you get the point
0: yeah
1: and uh and I won't hold myself up as perfect at those things, but when I reflect on any success I've had, I can pretty directly point to those things. And fortunately or unfortunately, they are differentiating professionally. <laughs> mm. when, you, when you do those things and you string them together, they, they can make you different and they can make you stand out. So that, yeah. that's all. It's not rocket science. It's just doing the basics.
0: Yeah. And, and you think of these remarkable opportunities, especially in your professional career. Life that you've had that you couldn't have orchestrated these, you know, intentionally, but because you you had some strong basic principles that you stuck to, when those opportunities uh, surfaced, you were able to to step into them. I bet
1: that's right. And they built trust, and when people trust you, uh, it creates a a different level of confidence to give you opportunities that otherwise they might not have been comfortable giving you.
0: Yeah. So- yeah. Uh, next principle that you have here in the outline is learn to say no. This is often a difficult one.
1: And one that was very difficult for me for many years. Kurt, I read a book that um, helped me a lot called Essentialism by Greg mm, yeah. McKeown. Uh, many listeners may be familiar with his good work. And in that book, he argues that when you learn to say no to the non-essential things, that more opportunity will come your way. Um, And I I have found that to be true. I'll give you an example. When I read it, I was first very doubtful. I thought, you know, (laughs) that's not true. The way you have opportunity come your way is you say yes to things. And then when you do those things, more opportunities to say yes come. So it was very counterintuitive to me. But I, I decided once when I was feeling particularly burned out at a point in time in my time at Walmart that I'd give this a try. I was getting lots of invitations to go speak at conferences. And I said yes to all of them, even ones that didn't really make any sense for me to go speak at. Hmm. And I got an invitation to go speak at the conference of the annual college of interventional radiologists. I'm not an interventional radiologist, I'm not a physician. I really have no business speaking at the Conference of Interventional Radiology, despite <laughs> it being very flattering to have been invited. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And I politely told the individual that called with this invitation, you know what? I, I can't do it. I'm, I have too much going on. It also happens to be over my wife's birthday. I never miss being with my wife on her birthday and so I've, I've got to politely decline this invitation. Thanks very much. They said, okay. Um, and to my great shock, the next year, guess who called? Same conference? <laughs> the same conference. Wow. Over the same time, over my wife's birthday. And I said, no. <laughs>
0: I <was> like, <laughs> Make a note in my file, please. Right? <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> and uh, the third year they called again. And I said, look the only way I would ever come is if you pay for both my wife and I to come together and spend her birthday together in this conference location. They said, sure, done deal. And I was able to turn that opportunity into a great uh, time together with my wife that otherwise I'm sure wouldn't have happened if I said no. And I have just found that trying to focus on things that are most essential and trying to say no to things that are nice, but not necessary, um, is really helpful to me making my contribution more effective where I do focus and perhaps counterintuitively, but I give Mr. McCune all the credit. Um, it actually has nurtured more opportunity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I love that, that concept. And, and really that if you need a great, uh, book to read and a former Latter-day Saint, Greg McEwen does a remarkable job unpacking all that in that book. And it's, it's inspiring for sure. Um, so I'm curious, like saying no, like, what does that look like today? Like, how do you evaluate? I mean, do you have a rubric you run, (laughs) run things through or, or, I mean, how do you get to know, or is it just maybe just being reflective and, and doing your best from there?
1: Yeah, I, I would say it's probably more art than science in my life, Kurt. I'll go back to what Greg said that I agree. This is an LDS podcast, so I'll, I'll adapt the words a little bit. He says, if it's not, heck yes, it's no. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a check I give myself. If I don't feel completely enthused and committed to saying yes, then it probably should be no right now. At least until I can work on why it's not. Um, heck yes. Um, you know, there's some other kind of filters that I apply in my life. What what I'm trying to achieve in my career. How much time I think I can uh, give to something. So, for example, in advising companies, I I spend some time advising small companies. Have been on the board of some small companies. And I found that over time, I could only do about two of those things well. And so, unless I'm willing to walk away from the one I'm doing, the answer is no, because I'm doing two right now. And so, setting some simple rules can help in that respect as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the next principle is lasting relationships. Tell us about relationships in your life. Yeah, these kind of build on each other,
1: Kurt, that when you get the basics right, um the chance to work with people um, is a chance to not just get something done transactionally, but it's a chance to build a relationship. And I, I love a quote from C.S. Lewis in his his book, The Four Loves. Um, he's talking about friendship and he he explains that every friendship is about something. And I, f- I find that every time I... And working with someone, or have a chance to interact with someone, um, it's a chance to make that friendship about something. And when friendships are about something, they tend to last longer. And uh, checking in with those same friends, uh, you know, periodically over years um, has been fruitful. And you know, it's it's not something you can measure in a day, but looking back over a decade. I can see that really investing in and nurturing these relationships every time I have a chance to build one has paid dividends and over time built a reputation that has been really an asset to me, something that um, people are willing to vouch for me and um, create opportunities on my behalf that I didn't deserve and that I didn't know about, Um, but they come from those relationships. so uh, I, I guess just don't don't look. At, maybe this is a function as well, Kurt. That I'm just kind of a rotten networker. I don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe some that are listening are as well. I don't know how to network. I don't know how to reach out. <laughs> work to the
0: room, right? and
1: work <laughs> the room. And in fact, in business school, there are a lot of. Uh, you know, networking events, and I didn't want to go to any of them. And I had to make a rule for myself that I'm not here to work the room. All I'm going to do while I'm here is try and talk to one person meaningfully. Hmm. And when that one person has been found and I had a decent conversation, I gave myself permission to leave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice, love
1: it. And and uh, over time, like. that's not a sprint, that's a marathon. But over time, that has really been a helpful and satisfying thing for me.
0: Yeah, I I love that. And I was going to ask you as far as any other like approaches or routines or tactics, because, you know, life gets busy, right? I mean, deadlines come and holidays, family time, and suddenly months go by and you maybe or years go by and you haven't you know reconnected with some of those important relationships especially like your your business relationships right and it's sort of the irony of you know networking and linkedin and these things is that when you need it most is when maybe you're you've been let go you're unemployed or looking for new opportunity but and it's hard to you know get ahead of it at that point you know the work is should always be going so that when you need it most those relationships are still established and strong and you can lean on them so any other routines or approaches that you do to make sure the the important relationships are, are strong in in your network saying thank you again back to the basics
1: <laughs> um but i'm not sure we all thank each other enough at work uh, genuinely and it goes a long way I, I try and say thank you and then this i don't think this is terribly novel kurt but I try when I when someone crosses my mind, even if I haven't talked to them for years, if I have their contact information, I'll just send them a quick note and say, "Hey, thought of you. Sure appreciate the good person you are and the the good work we're able to do together. Hope you're well." I've I don't know. I've never once got a reply to one of those messages saying we haven't talked in too long. We're not friends anymore. You know. <laughs> <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I, I think people are always welcoming to uh, a, a friendly voice from the past.
0: Yeah. And it was modern day technology can be, you know, you meet it as simple as, as that text. Right. And uh, or, or a, you know, Facebook message if we don't have their, their phone number anymore or whatnot. And it can be really simple and, and go a long way and with no like, oh, he's just contacting me because he needs a, you know, a referral or, or something like that. It can just be sincere and simple and away it goes.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the finest example of this, Kurt, you just sparked a thought that I, I've encountered is a dear friend and hero of mine uh, by the name of Roger Porter. Roger's a, a professor at Harvard and has served in multiple White House administrations. And Roger has a really remarkable um, ability to send a handwritten note. <clears throat> I don't know how many notes he writes every year. Um, but I know every single note I've received from him, uh, has made me feel like our relationship matters. Um, and like I matter and, uh, Roger doesn't need me. He doesn't, there's very little I can offer Roger. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, he, he does it out of goodness and, and sure there are professional benefits to it, but it's just such a. You know, work is such a remarkable way to encounter people that need encouragement and that need a lift. And that's one way it can, it can be given.
0: And this, uh, you know, dovetails perfectly in the next principle of kindness. Uh, you know, hopefully our relationships are built on kindness and, and kindness stimulates connection. So, but what else should we consider about kindness in our professional world?
1: Well, let me, let me tell you about two stories I had uh, coincident to the death of my father. Um, That happened about 11 years ago. And the first was the president of the business unit that I worked for at COVIDian. He heard that my father had passed away. And he, I'm sure by means of his assistant, sent a beautiful planter to my mom's house. And one of the plants still survives, (laughs) <laughs> wow. it sits in my mom's entryway. And every time I go to my mom's house and I see that plant, I think of the goodness of Brian Hansen. And what a remarkably kind thing it was for his, him to take a little bit of time out of his day to send a plant. And not just because of that, but in part because of that, Anytime time Brian Hansen calls me, anything I could ever do for Brian, I will, because of that act of genuine kindness. Um, the, the other was um, actually with Clay Christensen. Um, when Clay heard Clay and Christine heard that my father had passed away. Um, we lived in the same town and then we went to the same ward as they did. It was just days after Clayton had had a massive stroke. He wasn't in good shape. He couldn't string a sentence together. His physical mobility wasn't what it usually was. And my wife and I heard a knock on our tiny little duplex apartment at about eight o'clock at night, and unannounced, it was Clay and Christine standing in the door. They asked to come in. They asked if they could spend a little time with us. We talked briefly. Clay did his best to get a sentence out. Um, we hugged each other, and they they went back home. It was probably a ten or fifteen minute interaction. It really was life changing for us. The, not just the visit; the visit meant a lot. But to know how darn inconvenient that visit was, <laughs> hmm. to know that Clay and Christine could have very rightly been focused on themselves in that moment when he was recovering from a stroke. Um, and that they chose to come, even though the weather wasn't that good, even though Clay couldn't walk that well that day, even though he couldn't talk that well, even though I'm sure Christine would have really liked him to be resting and that Christine had a million other things to do. Um, they decided to just come spend 10 and 10 or 15 minutes with Ben and Kelsey. Um, that changed, that was life changing for us. It made a huge difference, um, these opportunities exist in our families. They exist in work. Um, they exist certainly in church. Um, and they're pretty short, right? It's, it took Brian Hansen, I think five minutes to send a plant. <laughs> it yeah. took, it took clay and Christine, probably 20 minutes, total door to door, to come change our life. Um, and particularly as we rise in positions of influence professionally in the church and in our families, the chance to be kind is a, really a chance to change a life, you know, and I like to think that my work at Humana matters and that professionally what we do makes a difference for our customers, our patients, our members. Um, but perhaps more importantly, if I can find a five or 10 or 15 minute chance to be kind, um, not, not contrived or orchestrated, but when they arise, um, I know from my own experience, it can really change someone's life. Um, do I think that can be helpful to you professionally? Yeah, sure. Um, but I think even more so it can be helpful to you in your development as a person that, um, you don't then look at the people at work as, um, you know inputs to a calculation of how I can advance and achieve you look at them as um, you know people that you might be able to to do something for that can be really helpful and work was just the mechanism that created that collision
0: or that interaction yeah, yeah. I love that that's inspiring and um, it gives a lot of reflection you know just the these relationships that we have and those moments and sometimes they're so quick, right? maybe the passing of of some, a loved one or, or, you know, whatever it is uh, that to step into those and, and reach out and send a simple gift or a quick phone call or text goes, goes a long way. Um, So I'd love to go back to just reflecting on your time in MBA school. You know, if you got in a time machine and and went back in time to, to talk to yourself on, you know, on day one of MBA school, with the hindsight you have now, like what what advice would you give yourself just just managing the day to day or the relationships, the networking, you know some of these principles in the context of your time at, at MBA school. What what advice would you start with? Wonderful question. Um, I don't have a lot of regrets
1: about my experience. Um, I. I had a family. I had a demanding church responsibility. School was demanding. I didn't have a chance to be engaged in every extracurricular activity or to be the networking superstar of my class. If I were to change one thing, I feel like I went through my experience at the MBA kind of in the paint-by-numbers way. Uh-huh. Where I showed up expecting that, you know, my school had it all figured out of what I needed to learn. And if I just went through the process and endured and, and persevered, that I'd come out better. And I think that was true. I think in hindsight, rather than paint by numbers, it would have been better to think about a blank canvas and think about what picture I wanted to create with my MBA more intentionally and then see if I could adapt and bend my MBA a little bit more to that clearer vision. Um, uh, But uh, I'm very happy with the experience I had. But I think if I had been a little more intentional about that, I probably could have got a little more out of it.
0: Yeah. And so how would you suggest someone, you know, paint outside of the numbers or outside of the lines a little bit? I mean, would that look like, you know, more extracurricular approaches, more social time, more time with the family. I mean, what would that what would that look like if you go back and try it again?
1: Yeah, I think some of it would relate to um, trying to have a little more clarity on what I wanted to do professionally and taking a risk in being specific. Mm. You know, I, I kind of had I knew what ballpark I wanted to be in. I didn't really know what what section or what seat. I wanted to be in, so to speak. But I'd advise my prior self to take a little more of a risk. I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I had a f- friend at uh, Walmart who happened to get into Harvard Business School as well. And he came and asked me a similar question. And I, I shared with him this paint by numbers versus blank canvas masterpiece uh, analogy. And I said, so if you're writing the blank canvas, what would you do? And he said, well, I really want to create the country's best chain of craft breweries.
0: Wow. That's (laughs) very specific.
1: Yes. Very specific. Now I, for perhaps obvious reasons, didn't have a lot to (laughs) offer him on the subject matter. Yeah. Uh, but what I said is, okay, if, if I were to try and give you advice, I would go to, uh, professors who had done a lot in franchise operations or who had done a lot in brand creation and I'd go explain to them what you want to do and I asked them do you know anyone who would know something about this or who would want to invest behind it and lo and behold he did that and he found those people and I think people at MBA schools, professors, staff they really want to see the students fulfill their dreams (laughs) And when a student can articulate a dream, it's been my experience that they're really willing to go out of their way to marshal resources and relationships and access to opportunities to help you do that. So,
0: And, you know, you think about super connectors, you know, business school professors, you know, especially places like Harvard. I mean, it's, I mean, they've got some connections of of students who've come through and, you know, just the natural connections you make just being in that position, you know, that alone could, you know, there's a lot to, to explore there.
1: I think that's exactly right. But you just, you don't get the answer to the question you don't ask. Yeah. Right. And, and so being willing to, to go to that professor and say, I really want to create that, whatever your version of the best franchise of craft breweries is the odds are they'll try their best to help you and they'll probably be helpful.
0: Yeah. And I love that, that uh, encouragement to get really specific. Cause I'd imagine, especially, you know, at a place like Harvard, you're thinking, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh, give my time here and go through business school and, And at the end of this, I'm going to get an MBA degree that uh, I can probably walk into all sorts of jobs. And so I'll I'll worry about being specific then when I have offers in front of me. But uh, what a great exercise to get really specific in, you know, in the moment as you're going through it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Obviously, I I can't speak from my own experience having been excellent at that, Kurt, but uh, (laughs) having observed some of those who have, I think they got more out of the experience.
0: Yeah. Any (laughs) other thoughts or advice come to mind as far as how you'd maybe paint outside the numbers a little bit better in business school? Great
1: question. In some cases, there can be a push to hurry up and get to know everyone because you're only here for two years.
0: Mm.
1: So make sure you know all of your classmates. Now, maybe this is a function of the school I went to, Kurt, because Harvard's a relatively big program, 900 plus students. Mm, Wow. But because of the aforementioned time constraints I had I wasn't the champion networker and so one thing I did there is I I just tried to invest heavily in a handful of relationships um I did that out of constraints in my own if you don't have those constraints maybe you don't need to do that but what I can tell you now almost 10 years afterward is those relationships still matter a lot Um, have been really helpful to me. In fact, every professional opportunity I've had since uh, business school, I can point to in some way or shape uh, the influence of my Harvard experience in creating those opportunities for me, Um, usually through the relationships I made while I was there. And so if you can know everyone at a deep level, you're a better networker than I am and, uh, teach me your ways. Um, (laughs) but, but one way I found was to try and really go deep with a few relationships and, and that has paid dividends. And over the years, I've actually found ways to expand to new relationships from my time there that we just didn't have the time to focus on our relationship then, but we found ways to now. Um, Yeah. yeah. And maybe that's, maybe that's the third thing. Um, curtain, perhaps obvious to some, that your relationship, your MBA experience doesn't have to end when you're done with your MBA. In fact, in many respects, it's just beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so engaging with the school, engaging with students that you'll someday want to hire uh, as you're successful in your career, and continuing to engage with your classmates really just helps continually enrich the experience and at least in my my circumstance i i feel like my my mba experience isn't something i speak about past tense 10 years in the re- rearview mirror it's continuing to unfold um yeah because of what we started there
0: so yeah wow that's really helpful that you know, there, there is, there's not this ticking clock as far as business school that you better get this all done in these two or so years or else, you know, the opportunity has gone. But I'm sure you could reach out even, you know, from a networking standpoint, you could reach out to any of your former classmates who are in business school at the same time and just say, hey, you know, my name's Ben and we were at Harvard at the same time. And from there, they'd be open to responding and, you know, there's sort of a natural connection there that you yeah. can continue to. To cultivate. That's certainly the case, Kurt. But I, I guess to try and articulate it more, more succinctly,
1: if you think about your your years in the MBA as the time when you plant seeds as much as when you harvest, oh yeah, then, then your MBA will continue to grow and enrich over the years. If you're just harvesting, it'll probably end when yeah. you graduate.
0: Yeah. So. So shifting gears a little bit, as far as in the context of family and business, whether that was during, you know, going through your education or, or after, you know, this is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, as Latter-day Saints, we have a strong tradition of, of family and connection and spending time with family and whatnot. And, and even maybe grouping, you know, church service in that, um, any advice that you'd give on, on finding, striking a balance there or, or, or at least reaching for it? Hmm. Uh,
1: Boy, I hesitate to hold myself up as a model there, Kurt. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean to, to so put in I, that, that point, no, but just no, what, what,
0: have, what things have you considered in that yeah, effort?
1: I've, I've tried hard. I, I will say that. I think one is, you know, back to the principle of find what matters and don't negotiate. Um, and that's different for different people just because you're a member of the church doesn't mean that we have the same norms in our families about what we can do well yeah. uh, in our families. So, I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, I when I was in a season of work where I had to travel a lot, probably three or four days a week, we were finding that that just didn't work for us, that one day was okay, two days was kind of okay. And when I was gone for three days, mm. our family got out of whack. Mm. Our routines and our rhythms were off. And so I started, once we realized this, my wife and I, I started drawing a line. I go on two-day trips. I don't go on three-day trips. But that needs to be your line. And I think we need to be careful about uh, the temptation to judge others by our lines, and thinking, oh, they don't care about their family; they just care about their career because they travel all the time, or because they work a really demanding job. Because different families can really do different things well. Uh, while we were struggling with this, you know, I can't do three week- days of travel. There was a fellow that we were acquainted with had a family of four, was a partner at a consulting firm, was happened to be an area authority seventy at the time was traveling four to five days a week for work, and then you most weekends had a state conference assignment. Now, would, would that individual say their life was easy in that chapter? No, I don't think they would have. In fact, I mm-hmm. know for certainty they didn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but did they do it well for their family? Yeah. They were able to pull that off, and they weren't sacrificing their family. They figured out how to do their family well. In that balance, so I guess I guess the two points, if there's anything I have to offer on that Kurt, are find what your boundaries are and then stick to them. Uh, on what you can do well in your balancing your responsibilities of family, church, and work, integrate as much as you can um, those, and then um, just be careful not to assume that others have the same boundaries or care less or do family less well because they do it different than you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Well, Ben, this has been, uh, just insightful and and I've gained so much just hearing you unpack these different principles and whatnot. Um, any other point or principle or story you want to make sure we, we told before we wrap up or how do we do? Well I think you did great, Kurt. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. I,
1: <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll share one experience. Uh, one story from a, a business school professor actually seems apropos for this this venue yeah um, it was a business school professor who by all measures had been successful. He was the vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. He was a Harvard Business School professor. He had made boatloads of money. He was good looking. He was charismatic, and I think most people in that class looked at him and thought, "My goodness, if my life could be like his, I'd, I'd just have it made." And one day in teaching that class, to his credit, he he was really vulnerable, and he said, "You know, I'm grateful for the success I've had in my life." Um but I consider myself a failure in most respects because I've never figured out how to get married. Hmm. And and this man was now in his fifties. Now I'm not saying that anyone who's not married is a failure. I'm not saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what I am saying is that everyone struggles um, and everyone wrestles. Even, everyone, even those who look perfect and who have it figured out and by many measures have been very successful. And so, again, the gospel applies here. Encouraging everyone you can, being kind to everyone you can, mourning with people that mourn is just good business advice <laughs> in addition to being good covenant-keeping and good Christ-like behavior. And this professor, um, you know, found a lot of solace from his students that day, but also revealed that, um, everyone has trouble. Your CEO has trouble. Your boss has trouble. Your bishop has trouble (laughs) and, uh, position and stature doesn't make anyone immune to that. And our chance when we have interaction with it, one another in these forums is, is to be helpful regardless of which seat you occupy.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks Ben. This has uh, again, been so insightful. The last uh, question I have for you is, is if you're in a room full of MBA students or young professionals or anybody that's striving to, uh, you know, live their life as a Latter-day Saint in a professional context, what final encouragement would you give them? well,
1: Be completely authentic to who you are Um, as a member of the church, live the gospel, um, and try and find ways to to paint with a canvas and level of specificity that you can really make a masterpiece of your life and with God's help, help you uh, become the best person you can be. Um, And it's a really wonderful, fortunate opportunity to go Get a graduate degree, and you know, congratulations on being able to do that. And and try in the best way you know how to be your authentic self and make the most of it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests, and visit LaredoSaintMBA.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.